Welcome to the Sentac Podcast. The Society for Ear, Nose, and Throat Advancement in Children is a collective group of like-minded healthcare professionals involved in the care of children with otolaryngology, hearing, speech, and swallowing disorders. We are uniquely composed of physicians and allied healthcare professionals, including otolaryngologists, pediatricians, basic scientists, audiologists, speech therapists, occupational therapists, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants. My name is Javen Nation. I am the Communications Director for Sentech. This first season of our podcast, we will focus on having conversations with different teams and team members that provide specialized care for children. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome. Uh, Today I have the pleasure of speaking with the Iowa Aerodigestive Clinic. Um, why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves? So, uh, first of all, my name is Sohit Kanotra. Um, I direct the pediatric airway program at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Uh, I'd like to thank Santac and Javan for giving us this opportunity to talk about our uh, complex pediatric airway program. Um, and I'm joined here with my team members, uh, Dr. Uh, Riyadh. Do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, Riyadh Rahal. I'm from the Division of uh, Pediatric uh, Gastroenterology. Um, and i am uh, been on the faculty here since 2007. And then Dr. Rebecca Weiner, do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, so I'm Rebecca Weiner. Um, I am pediatric pulmonology here at the uh, Stead Family Children's Hospital, and I've been here for a little over three years. Excellent. We were, we were supposed to be joined by our speech-language pathologist, but I feel he's in a sort of an emergency and couldn't make it, so we apologize. One of our team members is missing today. All right, so you guys are the uh, multidisciplinary aerodigestive team. Uh, let's start out by... Um, Tell me about uh, when your team was founded and the story behind the founding of it. Um, so it's a very interesting story. So University of Iowa, as we all know, is one of the oldest uh, otolaryngology programs and is one of the oldest ACGME accredited pediatric uh, otolaryngology fellowship. Um, Dr. Richard Smith, who's been um, uh, a stalwart of pediatric otolaryngology, uh, started uh, the airway program way back, I think in the early 2000s. Um, and then we had a clinic before I joined here in 2018, uh, which was run predominantly by ENT and pulmonary. Um, so when I started and took over the reins from him, uh, my main objective was to start a a full aerodigestive program. Um, and just to give you a little bit of a background, an aerodigestive program um, is a little bit different than an aerodigestive clinic. So the aerodigestive clinic is one component of a full aerodigestive program, which not only involves an aerodigestive clinic, but also involves airway safety initiatives, training of people and community support. So it's a massive program you run in which the clinic becomes one component of the whole program. So we started in 2018 and I found uh, great interest by my co-team members, uh, especially uh, Dr. Rihal and uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Weiner, who were really interested in uh, formalizing this clinic. 
um, and in making it a true multidisciplinary clinic. We also got speech-language pathology support. Um, and what started as a clinic four years ago, now it has is a robust, very busy clinical practice um, where we have seen close to 200 patients in the last uh, year and a half. Um, and done close to 30 or 35 triple endoscopies and um, a lot of open airways and a lot of laryngeal clefts repair and it's it's becoming a busy practice. Um, I'll, I'll let uh, Rebecca to chime in and, and give her uh, feedback as well about the clinic. Sure, so when I got here, um... I sort of took over as the pulmonary component from one of my colleagues who uh, was at the university before I had started. Um, and it was uh, really just exciting to come together. I really like the collaborative effort. Um, I trained at an institution that had a busy air digestive program as well. Um, so I was used to kind of the multidisciplinary care, um, the triple scopes, the procedures. So I really just enjoyed the environment and the uh, colleagues and getting to work with each other. I also was uh, quite interested when I uh, when I met the other team members. I do have experiences in, on other multidisciplinary clinics and have seen the impacts it has on especially complex patients. Uh, so when uh, so he kind of approached me uh, uh, for this venture, uh, it was uh, kind of quite it was an exciting thing, and uh, I can tell you I've been. Probably pretty happy and uh, glad that I actually took this opportunity when it was offered. Yeah, so so kind of going back to the beginning of the clinic, um, often it can be a challenge um, with programs who are trying to get started uh, because it takes clinicians out of their typical busy kind of general clinic and puts them in a clinic that's a little bit more volu uh, low volume, uh, which sometimes makes it uh, challenging for uh, administrators to uh, approve a clinic like this. Uh, did did you guys have challenges like that when you were setting up uh, your clinic? Um, that's a wonderful question. And I think uh, that is a question which was very relevant to also new physicians and uh, people who are fresh out of fellowship who want to start aerodigestive clinics in their respective institutions. Uh, so I had experience in, in LSU where I was prior moving to University of Iowa and I had set up the airway program with LSU at Children's Hospital in Orleans. So uh, during that time, I knew what the impact of an aerodigestive program is for the whole healthcare system as well as for the community. So it was easy for me to... Uh, not easy, but it, I actually had the background to motivate uh, the hospital administration to uh, start this aerodigestive clinic. Um, and and, J and Javan, you're absolutely right. Like the, these aerodigestive clinics are meant for uh, complex patients and they are low volume clinic, but they are high equity complex patients. Uh, so if you look at the, uh, the, the financial aspect of it, so even though on the face of it, a clinic might not uh, get you the, the financial sustainability which you are looking for a routine pediatric ENT clinic, it generates a lot of revenue downstream for the whole healthcare system. As an example, um, a patient which I see by myself might not get a triple endoscopy, um, might not get a swallow study, but if I see it as a team, all of us contribute to the care of the child as well as contribute to various other tests 
which are required for better evaluation of the child and which end up generating that downstream revenue. Leave apart creating a brand name in your community about these clinics. So these are the patients which are highly complex and need the most uh, coordinated care. And as such, uh, you create a brand name for your hospital where they know where to come if there is an aerodigestive patient anywhere in the state. So ours is the only aerodigestive program in whole of Iowa. So all these complex patients from all, from all around the state actually come to the, our, our aerodigestive uh, program. So that's a huge thing for the hospital because previously we were not catching these patients. So uh, these are all relevant questions uh, which you put forth to your administrator and make an argument about doing uh, these clinics, which in the long uh, scheme of things would be uh, financially sustainable if we take into account the downstream revenue. And there are studies which have actually shown the financial sustainability of the of these programs. Uh, Riyadh is pretty uh, uh, interested in understanding the financial aspects and has been a part. So I'm going to have him uh, pitch in with some uh, interesting facts about this clinic and multidisciplinary approach. Yeah, meaning some of the clear benefits with this is uh, uh, the fact that uh, there there is definitely some cost saving to the to the system uh, in terms of the, for example, uh, uh, the anesthesia times uh, the patient requires. So this is as opposed to having the patient go in, going independently to seeing the different specialists at different times in line, possibly undergoing procedures at different times. So uh, if these procedures are coordinated, again, when indicated, uh, often they, there's less cost to the system. Uh, there's actually much less risk to the patient. And again, we're talking here just from the anesthesia standpoint, where, where when we're dealing with young patients, there's has at least some theoretical concern about neurotoxicity. Uh, so all of those are, are risks and costs that we cut down. And then I think the other aspect of it, which is uh, what uh, this is mostly from the family perspective, the time to reach uh, a treatment, the time to, to reach a diagnosis and to initiate treatment is way, way much shorter. We're talking on average uh, uh, arriving to this clinic and within a few weeks after that, having a diagnosis and starting on treatment versus the average would, would be like, uh, we're talking more like months, four to six months of doing that uh, outside such a multidisciplinary process. So a lot of that will have positive impact throughout the system uh, at a time where many hospitals are dealing with shortages and getting, let's say, anesthesia services. Now you're actually you're utilizing your resources more effectively by actually having them do all these procedures at the same time. And these are just a few examples. Yeah, that's excellent. Let's, uh, let's dig down. Let's talk about the structure of your clinic. Um, how do you guys see patients together? How often do you do clinic? Uh, is it half day? Is it full day? Um, how long are your actual clinic appointments? To tell me, take me through uh, you know, the, the general structure of your clinic. Um, so we actually do half a day a month. Um, and again, I think that is uh, 
uh, less for, uh, since our, we are the only aerodigestive clinic in Iowa, and we have the capacity to expand to at least two or three times a month. Um, so at the moment, we are doing half a day a month, and we see close to 10 to 12 patients in half a day. Um, and this and this visits are essentially 20 to 30 minutes, and some sometimes we have to overbook. Um, and every aerodigestive clinic is a little bit different. Um, and I have been in two aerodigestive clinics, uh, one in which we were seeing the patients separately and then getting at the end of the day and discussing uh, the patients and then calling them afterwards with the plan. And the one we have right now in Iowa where we actually all go in together and as a team. Um, and I have felt personally the families love when we go in as a team. They get to see the whole team. We make a, we discuss the patient in front of the team. We make a plan in front of the family. We relay the plan in front of the family. And it's such a wonderful and reassuring feeling for the mothers and the families to hear a similar thing from all the physicians. The most important feedback we get is hearing different things from different physicians at different places. And they get such a wonderful experience of hearing the same thing from all of us. So we all go in together, we make a plan together, we relay it in front of the family in one uh, go. Um, and then if somebody has to follow up with more details, he or she will actually call the family to uh, to discuss uh, if there are additional things which need to be done. Um, and I'll let Rebecca to add on to this or, or Riyadh or Riha to add on to this as well. That's a good explanation of the, the setup of our clinic. And I agree, I, uh, a lot of our families really enjoy and I think really appreciate the fact that they can see multiple subspecialists um, at one time. It might be a longer day or the visit might be a little bit longer compared to if they saw us separately. But a lot of our families, like you mentioned, really travel from quite far to see us. And they um, they have to take off from work. They have to miss school for the visits. They're missing a lot to come see us. And I know that they really appreciate um, having one day, which might be a little bit longer and more involved rather than having you know, three separate appointments on three separate uncoordinated days. Um so I think that's one of the advantages of, of the program. And then being all in there to talk to the families at the same time, they get to see what we're all thinking as we're all discussing with the family, with each other. Um, and I think that really helps the parents um, keep up to date and really understand our whole thought process because it's all laid out in front of everybody in the room in the moment. Do you guys ever get into a situation where you might not necessarily agree on care? and you need to have a spirited conversation and you have to do it in front of the family? Uh, I mean, there's always room for kind of discussion, disagreement, meaning uh, we, we probably go into this with a very open mind, keeping, uh, recognizing that uh, there is a list of concerns that I would have and that list may not be exactly identical to my colleagues, but my job there is to make sure that I, uh, as, as I provide reassurance and support to the family, I provide also the same thing to my colleagues, that if they have a specific concern in, my, in mind, that I make sure that I do address that. And uh, even though maybe in my initial thought, it may not have been too high on my differential, for example. 
So we are the perfect aerodigestive team. We never have any, any, any disagreements. We always have the same thing to tell to the family. Nothing yeah. changes. That's why I love my team. Uh, there are disagreements. You're absolutely right. Like being uh, all of us being excellent, we'll have uh, uh, some disagreements in the care and sometimes. Uh, but again, at the end of the day, we do what is best for the child. And uh, what, what whatever works for the child, whatever we have, based on the standard of care we can offer. We try to deliver to the child. So um, the system actually works out pretty well. And again, if somebody has to add somebody something extra, they can call at the end of the day and, and we, we get it sorted out later on. Um, Excellent. Tell me, tell me about the referral pattern for the clinic. Where, where are these patients generally coming from? Are they being referred from uh, you know, inpatient um, cardiothoracic ICU unit? Are they being referred from you know, outside pediatricians? Are they generally being referred from internally, POM, GI, ENT? Uh, have you guys had a chance to look at this and do you understand this pattern? Uh, so it's really a mix of all of the different avenues that you've mentioned. Um, some of the patients we have are actually patients that we have seen individually in our own clinics um, and either have realized that this happens to be a patient that sees all the other subspecialties but hasn't been hooked into the aerodigestive clinic, so we make that referral. Um, or we all separately have seen a patient and maybe they haven't seen the other subspecialists, but we have concerns that we think are relevant to everybody in the clinic. So we kind of self-refer um, to our own clinic so that I can get the expertise, for example, of ENT and GI instead of having to refer completely separately. Um, so sometimes the referrals are coming within from within. Um, we have done grand rounds and some different um, kind of teaching opportunities um, and things at our hospital to let those, not necessarily just within our program, but hospital-wide know about the aerodigestive program. Um, so I know that I get referrals when I'm on patient, for example, somebody says, oh, this is a great aerodigestive patient. We want you to see them and follow up. So that comes from pediatricians, our hospitalists, other subspecialists, um, inpatient and outpatient. I, I can tell you as a pediatric otolaryngologist, uh, in my program, I'm not part of the aero clinic, but often I'll see these complicated patients come through my general clinic. And before we had aero, uh, I'd see a patient like this come in and I knew I was going to be an hour behind after they left. And so I just saw my whole day go down the drain. And now it's amazing. I can tell the family, I have the perfect place for you where you can see all the different specialists at the same time. And it's, uh, it keeps me on time and I, I really appreciate it. Uh, having somewhere to kind of to put them and know they're going to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. yeah. One of the things we are experimenting, Javon, is with the in-house aerodigestive team, uh, meaning once a NICU considers it as a as a consult for ENT and GI and Palm, they they we have a epic uh, consult note where we have an in-house in aerodigestive team and it goes to that team and they can see the patient together in the NICU um, rather than uh, seeing it separately. And again, that's a pilot project we have taken um, and something which we want to justify uh, feasibility in our setting as well. So I think that's a, that's a unique concept uh, of getting an in-house aerodigestive team started. Oh, very cool. So which procedures generally do you guys do uh, in clinic? Um, are you guys doing fees, um, flexible laryngoscopy, anything else you guys perform in clinic? Riyadh, do you want to take this question? Uh, yeah, so the, in terms of uh, uh, in-person uh, 
uh, awake evaluations in the clinic, uh, the fees or the uh, the study uh, done with uh, swallowing as the laryngoscope is is uh, uh, in place is definitely one of the actually new things that I learned through this uh, clinic uh, in terms of the amount of information it can provide, uh, the fact that it kind of avoids the need for radiation. Of course, it's not going to be feasible in every single patient, but that is uh, uh, something we definitely do. There's, of course, the flexible laryngoscopy um, as well to look at structural anatomic abnormalities above the cords. Uh, so those tend to be quite routine in patients who have uh, a trach, scoping through the trach, again, looking at any I mean, anatomic issues uh, below the level of the trach is, is something that is done quite routinely. Uh, one of the areas we're working on, we, we don't have that uh, uh, yet in uh, uh, functioning format yet, is uh, an in-office uh, flexible GI endoscopy. Uh, we do have the uh, equipment. Uh, we're working on some training. And there's probably going to be some selection process in terms of what would be the best patients to kind of offer that, uh, specifically looking into the esophagus. So this will not provide a full endoscopy of the upper GI tract. Take me through the, pro the thought process of um, when you want to do a a functional endoscopic evaluation of swallow versus um, a modified barium swallow. And, and if you decide you want to do both, um, what, what information you're garnering from both uh, that you don't necessarily get from you know, each one individually? So um, th that's a great question. And uh, that's, a, that's a huge debate, the correlation between uh, VFSS and fees. Uh, I think the parents now are pretty, um, uh, they, they study and they know the radiation effects. So that's where limiting the role of VFSS takes um, a huge importance. Uh, because uh, as long as you limit the number of VFSS to four a year, that has been shown in adult studies uh, to be safe. But above that, you reach a radiation dose, which is a little bit higher than what you get from background radiation. So uh, in our clinic, um, most of the patients will actually get a fees as long as they are cooperative. Uh, we are able to get a fees in almost all of these patients who present with complex dysphagia as a workup of LTR, um, as a workup for laryngeal cleft repair. Uh, the issue becomes if the if the fees is is the patient is uncooperative or if uh, the fees turns out to be normal and the and it's not correlating with the clinical symptoms then we try to get a VFSS in all of these. Regardless, if the child has to go to the operating room for a laryngeal cleft repair, and we suspect laryngeal cleft based on the clinical symptoms, we will get a VFSS done for these patients. Post-operatively, uh, all these patients get a fees at least, uh, but if they show persistent symptoms, then we get a VFSS. If they don't show persistent symptoms after a laryngeal cleft repair and clinically are better, then we won't repeat a VFSS in these patients. Um, and uh, all. Can I, can I yeah. ask you? So, so why do you want a VFSS uh, before you do a laryngeal cleft repair, as opposed to just a just a yeah? It, yeah, we do it only if the fees is normal and is not correlating with the clinical I see. symptoms. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, that is the only reason I'll go ahead and do a VFSS because, of course, that's the gold standard to which we compare all our other modalities of treatment. 
Um, but fees is something we routinely do. Or if the patient is not cooperative, those will be the two things. Or the patient uh, just doesn't take anything by mouth. Those will be the couple of th uh, situations where we'll get a VFSS. Most of the patients who get referred to the clinic already had had a VFSS done at an outside facility, actually. So um, our, our VFSS rates is not that high. Either the referring provider has already done a, 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 a video fluoroscopic swallow study. So uh, we just limit as much as we can the role of VFSS in our clinic. Interesting. And, and I know our speech pathologist isn't here, um, but have you, have you found that there's a learning curve uh, as a group or as an institution for getting better at performing fees in kids? Um, yeah, so uh, that is a, a great point. So as Riyadh was saying, like we he, we started he started seeing it when we started doing it in aerodigestive clinic. So there is a learning curve to fees, but it's a pretty simple study as long as the parents are on board and as long as the child takes something by mouth. So for me, the tricky part is uh, once the scope in a, a scope is in and the child is just refusing to take anything by mouth, then how long do you wait for that one instance? Uh, so th that that dynamics comes into the situation about uh, how long do you want to wait for a fees, but um, in general, I think um, it's a it's a wonderful study. And now we do so many of them. Any one of us can pick up a posterior pattern of aspiration or a lateral pattern of aspiration or what is residue, how the secretions are working, and then the speech pathologist works with different consistency to see what is safe for them. Uh, Ria, do you want to add something to your experience of seeing fees? And no, I mean, I think what what you mentioned was was on track. I think uh, we have been blessed with our speech pathologists in terms of they've been able to uh, navigate and work with uh, kids with a variety of complex conditions, uh, uh, the kind of developmental delay. And uh, I was going to say, I agree that the vast majority of times we are able to at least get a few swallows in that can give us a good, uh, a good idea. Uh, I think preparing the, the parents has been uh, also helpful. So uh, the child is going to be uh, not very happy in the, in the setup, but as long as you explain it to the parents, they, they know what to expect. They are kind of instrumental in making sure that it does work out. Yeah. Cool. And then going one step further. Um, so, you know, you see the child in clinic, you've done your assessment. How do you, how do you make the decision for the next step for uh, who and when gets a triple endoscopy? Um, so I know this very complicated goes back. No, I mean, uh, meaning we have these, uh, we have these discussions. I'm not going to call them arguments all the time, uh, but uh, essentially it really goes back to, as we're taking the history from the parents, and uh, this is where we go kind of specialty by specialty, uh, we are actually formulating our differential diagnosis. Uh, some of that is gonna overlap. There are symptoms who, that may come from upper airway or lower airway or GI uh, kind of etiologies or contributors. Uh, so as we, um, uh, once the entire team has gone through the questioning and really have their differential diagnosis, the next step is to say, okay, well, this is how I would evaluate it. Uh, from my standpoint, looking at the mucosa with an endoscopy is going to be needed. Uh, is there any need for any sedated procedure from, from the other team members? So we go through that process. 
clearly recognizing that if we are going to put this kid through a sedated process, we'd rather do it once to really minimize that, the exposure to minimize the cost. Uh, there are situations where uh, it, uh, a endoscopy will not be needed uh, because there, sometimes the signs and symptoms may be consistent with more or less a straightforward uh, entity that if we treat and we have a good response, there is no need for further workup. Uh, but a lot of the kids we have have already gone through one or multiple forms of treatment. Uh, so many of them may still need that. And again, based on the numbers, we have uh, so far around 30 to 35 triple endoscopies, but this is coming from almost 200 patients. So it kind of tells us that not every single patient will need it, but we highly discuss it to make sure that it is really done one time. This is more from the diagnostic standpoint. The other way it can come up is with certain patients that are coming in for uh, like major open um, airway reconstruction uh, because a triple endoscopy does have benefit in terms of risk uh, stratification for that patient. Uh, so a patient who may seem asymptomatic from the GI standpoint, but may still have subclinical reflux or eosinophilic esophagitis, this really reduces the rates of success after an airway reconstruction. So those would be a small separate entity of patients where we'd still offer it just to make sure that the ultimate surgery, which is an airway surgery, is as successful as possible by mitigating these risk factors early on. Uh, as I mentioned before, I'm not part of an aero team, uh, but I, I work uh, in a multidisciplinary sleep team. And one of the things I really appreciate is working uh, together with the other specialties. And we do it similar where we go in the room together. So I hear the questions they're asking. Um, and I found myself, I, you know, I think about things differently. Um, I even take my history differently um, because of that opportunity to work together. So, so my next question for you guys is give me some examples of uh, things you've learned from, you know, working with each other as, as a multidisciplinary team? Well, I've learned a lot, like, <laughs> from each one of the specialists which come to the team. Um, I'll start with my speech-language pathology colleagues, for example, it's like uh, the, 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 the way they assess uh, clinically uh, swallow evaluations. That's just a wonderful thing to watch how different consistencies, positioning the child and, and the recommendations which they make um, and how detail-oriented are, 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 are our speech-language pathologists, specifically with a focus on the oral phase, which something as ENTs, we are so focused on the pharyngeal phase, we, we try to overlook the oral phase. So for me, that has been a huge learning experience. We do voice assessments for all our open-airway recon patients, so that's a huge thing which uh, I've learned. Uh, from my pulmonary colleagues, it's been just a wonderful experience learning how they treat chronic uh, lung inflammation. For example, chronic bacterial uh, bronchitis is something commonly seen and how they are managing it. Um, how, they, how they look at sleep studies, which is a little bit different than how ENTs look at sleep studies, uh, which, is, uh, which has been such a, a wonderful learning experience for us. Um, from my, my GI colleagues, it's been how they manage reflux, which is pretty guarded than the way ENTs actually manage reflux, which has been a, a revelation for me because we try to be more aggressive with reflux management where they might be a little bit more guarded with reflux management and how they take care of other things in the child, malabsorption, um, the strictures, esophageal 
material structures and um, and management of EOE and all that stuff. So um, I think there's lots and lots of learning which we learn from each other, Tim. And hopefully my other team members have learned something from me as well. So. Oh no, and I I, I agree. Uh, as I mentioned, the uh, the feasts uh, and in overall the awake in office uh, kind of uh, flexible procedures was something very new to me. So that was uh, uh, kind of an eye opener. Uh, I think looking at the uh, how to assess the airway dynamics, uh, whether it's the vocal cords, whether it's concerns for collapse, letting Malaysia. Uh, I'm more comfortable looking at that and I, I know what they're referring to. Uh, so that those were uh, really great things for me to, uh, to get to know. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the great things about the clinic is it not only serves a really good need for our patients, but it just the entire clinic for me is a learning experience. Every time we go in with a patient, I'm learning how to ask GI questions better so that in my own clinic, I can look out for issues or I can try to screen for issues better than I might have known how to do before. So I'm, I'm learning how to pick up on things and evaluate and realize if something is a concern or not from the ex experts who I would send this person to. Um, so I'm, I'm able, better able to take care of patients and realize when they need the expert care and when they need to see my colleagues. Um, and just being in the OR together when we're all there um, doing the triple scopes is a great learning experience. Even though I do bronchoscopies, I look at the airway, I get to see a new viewpoint. I get to learn new things um, when ENT is looking at the upper airway, when they're probing for clefts and different things that I don't do as a pulmonologist. So I have a, a better appreciation of the surgical evaluation and techniques that everybody in their group has. I and mean, it's a really good experience to be all in there at the same time, um, seeing this happening. Yeah, very cool. So, so let's take this one step further. Can you give me an example of, uh, you know, a specific patient uh, where you guys think, you know, they were uh, benefited from this uh, multidisciplinary approach and from you guys kind of being together and thinking together uh, to come to a you know, diagnosis or a treatment plan? Rebecca, do you want to give your example first? Yeah, so I, I have one very specific patient in mind, um, but to be honest, it's actually not just one patient with this scenario. It's a handful of patients that um, have complex needs, had tracheostomies for uh, varying different reasons, um, that were seeing the different subspecialties, but maybe not as frequently as they could have been seen. Um, so we had a few of these patients that got hooked up in aerodigestive clinic, and um, we were really evaluate, able to evaluate, one, the need for any respiratory support, or I was able to come up with a specific plan to wean off of respiratory support so that we could really move forward with decannulation in a planned and efficient manner. Um, so we, we had some patients that were doing okay, but they probably really could have been moved through this process a lot quicker. Um, so once we got them in aerodigestive clinic, it really was something that we could plan as a team. And we, it, for many of these patients, it required multiple evaluations and surgical interventions to get them to the point where the trach could be removed. Um, and I just thought that was a great success story. Many of these patients were a little bit older. They were ready to have their trachs out. And we really were able to capitalize on the ability to work together to get that done in the most efficient way, um, which was a very complex way for a lot of these patients. 
Yeah, the uh, the example that uh, that comes to my mind is uh, uh, within the category of patients with chronic aspiration, where we may take care of them in the GI side. Uh, really, from the symptomatic standpoint, we would find safe ways to feed them through different tubes, uh, either a gastrostomy, sometimes a, a gastrojejunostomy or a GJ tube. Uh, but really the underlying chronic issue of aspiration often is not fixed. And this, this patient is often deprived of the ability to feed by mouth and is left dependent on a specific feeding device. And through this clinic, uh, some of them were able to uncover something like a, 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 a laryngeal cleft uh, that was uh, uh, found in one of the triple endoscopies. It was treated. And within a matter of a few months, the patient was able to slowly and safely able to take things by mouth. And at some point, uh, these feeding devices were no longer needed. I think um, uh, uh, the, a couple of patients really stand out where I feel uh, my team members made a huge difference. Uh, one of the decisions making step, as you know, Javan, in uh, open airway is whether we are going to proceed with a single or a double stage uh, open airway surgery. And in all those decisions, my pulmonary colleagues are always uh, uh, involved in making that decision. Uh, so one of the patients where uh, was a was a was a cardiac transplant patient where we were proceeding with a single stage LTR and I thought that was the right decision to do um, and we we talked it over and everybody was on board um, and things went pretty well the kid got extubated and things are going well but then he had lots of secretions lots of stuff in his lungs which we were unable to clear and that's where the pulmonology was doing wonders with their medical management and going in and suctioning and doing a, a full lavage in the OR and trying to clean up the lungs. And that really saved the child from getting a retrake because uh, he was just one of the most complex patients you can think of. Uh, this, the second component is all these LTR patients where we have picked up EOE and we all know EOE is a huge uh, issue with uh, uh, modifying our results post uh, with airway reconstructions. So uh, I think the that's that's the fun part of working in a team. That's the fun part of doing triple endoscopies. Like we pick up stuff uh, which could uh, which could actually prevent uh, uh, getting giving us optimal results after an airway reconstruction. So, um, yep. Awesome. This has been great. So two more questions, uh, and you guys can uh, each take a stab at this um, to finish up. So uh, first is you know where do you think we're falling short? in our aerodigestive uh, care today. And where, where do you think things will be? And how do you think it'll be different in 10 to 15 years? Um, so um, I'll, I'll get started. So I think one of our biggest challenging ha has been to transition the care from a pediatric aerodigestive to an adult aerodigestive clinic. We don't have an adult aerodigestive clinic. And that is a challenge, is the transition of care. Uh, from uh, pediatric to adult when they're ready to get get uh, get discharged from our clinic. Um, as far as the future goes, I think the future of aerodigestive programs will be essentially the way craniofacial multidisciplinary approach has moved, where we'll need program certifications for these, uh, these aerodigestive clinics. Uh, and secondly, we might have different diagnostic coding 
uh, which actually uh, incorporates the time and the complexity which is involved in delivering care to these patients. Um, and I foresee in, in like four or five years, Aerodigester will be a, a separate subspeciality where we'll have fellowships, where we might have additional funding streams from Children's Hospital as well as for research. So um, the future is excellent for Aerodigestive care. It's just, uh, it's just going to be much more bigger and wider uh, uh, access for the patients. So, yeah, to add to that, uh, I think uh, there's definitely room to uh, cut down first further, uh, further on costs and exposure to anesthesia. Uh, meaning the uh, uh, the learning and the exposure we've had from ENT regarding the in-office uh, uh, airway uh, endoscopy uh, has opened our eyes to the uh, to the potential benefit of uh, in-office uh, non-sedated upper GI endoscopy. Uh, so I think that specifically because esophagitis is on the top of the list of concerns in some of the in uh, a good chunk of the uh, these aerodigestive patients. So I think that is probably going to be a reality in the next just few years. Uh, the other aspect for, uh, for that I think needs change is uh, how quickly patients get into these clinics. Uh, so in terms of referral, triaging, and I think there is room for uh, to include artificial intelligence uh, where such patients uh, or patients that have specific criteria should preferentially be referred to an aerodigestive clinic versus to see a specialist separately. Uh, as I mentioned, with all the benefits of this clinic in terms of reducing the time to diagnosis and treatment, uh, the, uh, I think one of the biggest thing is being able to effectively triage these patients and there is room to use AI, I think, in the near future. Um, I, this is just a model of care that has been expanding over the years and individually in each of our subspecialties, we have greater technologies, greater therapies, greater things that we can offer for our patients that is going to just continue um, the, the stream of very complex multifaceted patients that we take care of. So there's going to be more and more patients over time that can really benefit. Um, so more and more children's hospitals across the United States are going to be developing their own programs. That's going to allow for some better regional coordination um, and then national events such as the uh, national conference each year. That's really going to build our ability to take care of our patients with standard approaches with evidence-based medicine going to encourage research um, when you have a much larger population of very complex kids that are harder to necessarily study or look at otherwise. Excellent. Well, I just want to thank you guys for taking the time. Uh, it's been a great conversation. I've learned a lot. Uh, on behalf of Centac, thank you for sharing your expertise uh, and have a great night. Thanks again. Thank Thanks. you. So much. Thank Thanks, you. Javen. Thank you.